The Glory Center would like to welcome you to this podcast. We hope that this teaching will encourage and minister to you. And now, the message. Uh, we'll jump back into it here. And we are sort of wrapping up on some of these uh, issues here on uh, what I've been calling foundations. Had several people uh, express wanting to hear more about uh, eschatology and those types of things. And those are certainly foundational issues for many reasons. Um, one of the big things with, well, of course, we all get this with uh, eschatology is it's good to know, you know, what's, that these things are behind us, not in front of us. Even though the world has its own problems, it always does and it always will. We understand that. But some of these certain uh, prophetic events of Scripture, you know, have been fulfilled. I think living on the other side of that, I consider a blessing. Um, it's also very important in understanding that really what all this is about was about the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And so that's one of the issues. That's one of the reasons why it's so important to grasp uh, these issues. And there's many things in Scripture that um, don't make a lot of sense in, until we understand that that's what all of this was about. It was transitioning from the Mosaic Age to the Messianic Age, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, and that's that's just a beautiful thing. And and how they weave together and how they bring the Scriptures together. Um, so that being said, we've been using handouts for this. Uh, there's a lot of information on these things. Uh, really excited today. This will be, um, we're going to look at the Olivet Discourse. And, um, well, you'll see it when I read it here. Uh, top of page one, number one. Uh, throughout church history, the church at large readily understood that the Olivet Discourse, which is Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, and I would also say the book of Revelation, John's version, um, was fulfilled in the first century relating to the events of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Only in recent times, beginning approximately in the 1830s, have small segments of Christians or churches or denominations, have they began teaching that these events are about the end of the world and are yet to be fulfilled. And that's what we're basically going to show today um, from church history, from Scripture, the understanding. Um, and it would take about a thousand years to thoroughly cover that, um, the, looking through church history. But we just got some highlights uh, that I think will help. So just to set the stage here, let's uh, read from number two. Now this is Matthew 23, which is when Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and the scribes, the whole chapter. Uh, but jumping around, starting in verse 29, oh, and then uh, 33 through 38. So Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And then jump down to verse 33 here. Just He says, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Now this is important, and I put it in your notes there. The word hell in the New Testament, you usually there's two words used for hell. Uh, there's one usage of another word in Peter, uh, his... I want to say second epistle. Uh, there's not a lot of clarity on what it was anyways. Um, it's, but the two main words used are Hades, or Hades, but Hades. You guys have at least heard Hades, haven't you? The, another very common one um, is this word here, is in your notes, 
Gehenna, which literally translates the Valley of Hinnom or the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, which was a very famous place all, th all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Read Jeremiah. There's a lot of references to it. And it was places of war. Um, it, it was a place where uh, it was literally a, a, a dump, basically, slash fire pit. And, I mean, it, it, was, it was not a pretty place, to say the least. And this is the kind of stuff when Jesus would tell the Pharisees, you know, when he first came and John baptizes him, and John tells the Pharisees, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Well, that was Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, which is when, when the Romans come in and murder, you know, over a million of these Jewish people, that's where their corpses end up, Gehenna. It was uh, basically a city dump right outside of Jerusalem. And so it was, it's, uh, that's very helpful to understand because you see hell in your English translation, we just think hell, but sometimes and very often, in, in fact, in the New Testament, it's Gehenna. And so that can be helpful to understand. Jesus says, therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes talking to the Pharisees. He says, some of them you will kill and crucify. Uh, some of them you will scourge in your synagogues, persecute from city to city, so that upon you, that, you know, that his immediate audience there, um, may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Of course, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then under that, uh, by saying this generation, Jesus was clearly referring to his contemporaries. He uses this phrase five times in Matthew's gospel alone and 17 times in total throughout all four gospels. And in every case, he is referring to his contemporaries. Furthermore, Jesus' usage of this generation in Matthew 23 and 24 were uttered in 30 AD and the temple was destroyed 40 years later in 70 AD. And in many places of scripture, the Lord refers to the children of Israel in the wilderness as a generation. And how long was their time in the wilderness? 40 years. D does all that make sense? Okay, yeah. Um, and then, of course, we know this uh, under that, the house, of, the house or the house of the Lord uh, refers to the Jewish temple just all throughout the scriptures in many places. You've turned my father's house, for example, into a den of thieves. Um, Peter in 1 Peter 4 says judgment must begin at the house of God. He was talking about the temple. Um, so anyways, um, and this is interesting because using that generation understanding, uh, the children of Israel, of course, wandered for 40 years before they entered the promised land. And so, so they had left 
the old world, the old way, the old system of slavery and bondage in Egypt. Similarly, in the new covenant, the, the children of God, there was a, a beginning, a, a new exodus, all right, um, out of the old covenant. But there was a 40-year kind of wilderness transitional period. Because think about it, and I know we understand this, the temple was still standing, even though Jesus said it's finished, poured out the Spirit, uh, people were born again, Spirit of God's poured out, etc. And the temple was still functioning. So, but that, that doesn't mean that God was honoring the temple system anymore. It was dead. It was a corpse being propped up like everybody's favorite movie, Weekend at Bernie's, right? And so that's why Hebrews chapter 8 says some of the, like in Hebrews 8, uh, verse 13, I believe, um, the author of Hebrews says, says that when he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So he says that system, that old covenant, it's already obsolete, but soon it will literally vanish, disappear off the face of the earth. And so we see that overlap. Even in, you know, governments, there's times where, you know, just recently here, you know, there's that transition. You know, even David, think about King David. Jesse comes in 1 Samuel 16 and anoints him, but Saul is still king. And I believe that was a 40-year transition as well. I, I could be wrong on that. I'd have to double check. Um, so anyways, we see that overlap period and that plays out. And that actually will help you when reading through the New Testament. Um, That'll just generally help help different things click, like um, Colossians two. There, there's some verses there. There's plenty of places. Hebrews eight here, but anyways, all right. Notice this. Uh, lastly, here on this part, uh, page two B, and then Matthew twenty four, and then we read these last week. But just to continue setting the stage here, it says as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, "Tell us when will these things happen." What things? The sign of your parousia, your coming, your presence, arrival in Greek, and the end of the age. Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. And then if you jump down to verse 34, he directly answers the question, This generation, which we just covered, will not pass away until all these things take place. And I mean, there is no wiggle room around that. And we shouldn't want to change that. Just, you know, I was raised in a tradition that said all that stuff's in the future. But if words mean anything, you know, if we're going to be objective and intellectually honest on any level, um, there's just, there's no way around it. Sometimes people will interpret that and say, well, what he meant was the generation that's alive at that time. But that's not what he said. He said this generation, which he said 17 times in the four Gospels, and without exception. It, it always referred to his contemporaries, his direct audience. Uh, also, kind of oddly, there are those who say that this word generation means race, like genealogy. Um, that's not what this word is in the Greek. And so that, that there's just, you can't, in other words, that there are those who say that these things are still in the future, but they're strictly for the Jewish people. So this race will not pass away. Well, that's not what it says, all right? So it's this generation. Now, let's look here um, at some quotes, and, and I think this will be super helpful. This isn't exhaustive by any stretch. 
There's whole books in church history that cover this um, massively. And so this is just a few snippets. Uh, the first gentleman is Origen, who was, uh, he lived in Alexandria, uh, which is in Egypt. He was uh, basically the preeminent church leader in the world at, at this time. Um, here's what he said. And he said a lot about this, but just this part. He said, we do not deny then that the purifactory fire and the destruction of the world took place. So he says this happened, right? In order that evil, sin, might be swept away and all things be renewed. For we assert that we have learned these things from the sacred books of the prophets. Now, a lot of things to keep in mind here. Remember the Jews, one of the idioms for the temple was heaven and earth, right? And so, like when Jesus said, um, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not, right? He's talking about the temple. That was, that's in Matthew 24, and that was their question. That was an idiom for the temple. Um, if you understand Solomon's temple, Solomon's temple was built uh, to reflect physical creation. You can, you can find that and study about that. Um, this is very common knowledge to those who have studied this and looked into it. Um, but notice there, I love what he says. Uh, the destruction of the world took place in order that evil might be swept away. Well, there's other ways to say that. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new, right? So um, anyways, now look here at Eusebius. Eusebius is called the father of church history. Uh, his most famous book uh, is called Ecclesiastical or Church History, and uh, it's very good. It's readily available. I see it at Barnes & Noble most usually when I... When I when I peruse around there. Um, any questions so far on any of this? All right. Um, uh, Eusebius here says this, all of this, and he was talking about Matthew 24, occurred in this manner in the second year of the reign of Vespasian, which was in 70 AD, according to the predictions of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, next is John Chrysostom or Chrysostom. Chrysostom wasn't his name. It was a title, and it means golden-tongued. So he must have been a smooth talker, you know? That's what it means. <laughs> oh, golden-tongued John. Uh, he said this. This, and he's quoting Jesus at first, and then he elaborates. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and the end will come. And then John says, the sign of this final end will be the downfall of Jerusalem. See, this was thoroughly, thoroughly understood. Next, uh, a few more here. John Calvin, just giving a wide array of, regardless of some of these guys were Catholic, some were Orthodox, you know, some are Calvinists, some are Methodists, got a wide array here, just showing that it's, it's not an argued truth. It, it readily understood. Calvin said this, Christ informs them that before a single generation shall have been completed, they will learn by experience the truth of what he has said. For within 50 years, and it was 40 to be exact, for within 50 years the city was destroyed and the temple was razed, R-A-Z-E-D, and the whole country was reduced to a hideous desert. All right? Uh, John Wesley, the great Methodist, 
said this, Matthew 24 was most punctually fulfilled, for after the temple was burned, Titus, the Roman general, ordered the very foundations of it to be dug up. You remember when Jesus said, not one stone will be left standing. After which the ground on which it stood was plowed by Turnus Rufus. This generation of men living shall not pass till all these things be done. The expression implies that a great part of that generation would be passed away, but not the whole. Just so it was, for the city and temple were destroyed 39 or 40 years later. Spurgeon, you guys ever heard of Spurgeon? They called him the Prince of Preachers. Um, of course, you know, I'm not a Calvinist, but I read everything. I mean, I'll read from any tradition or, you know, whatever. Um, Spurgeon has a book that, by and large, is very good. It's called, um, uh, I think it's called All is Grace. I think so. I'm confused because Brandon Manning wrote a book called, I may be getting confused, but it's something like that. Um, I think you can, if you Google it, you can read it for free. I mean, it's, it's how all your sins are forgiven and the utter goodness of God. Oh, very good read. Anyways, here's what Spurgeon said. There was a sufficient interval for the full proclamation of the gospel by the apostles and evangelists of the early Christian church and for the gathering of those who recognized the crucified Christ as the true Messiah. Then came the awful end which the Savior foresaw and foretold, and the prospect of which wrung from his lips and heart the sorrowful lament that followed his prophecy of the doom awaiting his guilty capital. The destruction of Jerusalem was more terrible than anything the world has ever witnessed, either before or since. And Jesus actually mentioned that too. Uh, I believe Daniel did as well. The point there, because we think of things like the Holocaust or Stalin killing 50 or more million of his own people, and we think, well, on that scale, it, those things are worse. The difference is Israel was the only time God ever had a covenantal nation. Today, God's people isn't a nation. It's whosoever calls on the name of the Lord, right? And so that, that's the point there, that these people, through whom came the oracles of God, who should have known God, who should have known the ways of God, etc., 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 their own Messiah shows up. God in the flesh stands up. They're the only people that have been given the oracles of the living God, and they don't recognize him to the point that they murder him. And so that's, that's why this was so terrible in, in, in that sense. And so um, uh, Spurgeon agrees with Jesus and Daniel there and hits the nail on the head. Uh, I believe one more. Let me see. On these, yeah. Any questions at any time, just throw up a hand, you know, let me know. R.C. Sproul. Um, R.C. Sproul, uh, another Calvinist scholar, minister, said this. In this discourse, Matthew 24, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the dispersion of the Jews, all of which took place in AD 70. The uncanny accuracy of these predictions is embarrassing to higher critics. And um, there's a lot to that. Uh, any of you ever heard of, he, he's, he's deceased now. Uh, he was one of the four horsemen of the modern, um, what are they? Uh, there, there's a specific word I'm looking for. They're, they're famous atheists, 
Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens. Um, I forget who the other two are. It might be Sam Harris. And you might know who any of these people are. Yeah. You're not missing out on anything. But, okay, Dawkins, yeah. Um, Hitchens was in a debate, I believe, with uh, a pastor by the name of Doug Wilson, who uh, understands these things. And so R.C. Sproul just said this is embarrassment to higher critics. There are slews of unbelieving people who are called critical biblical scholars. They, they just study it for history or for this or that, but they don't believe it. They don't believe in, there's a whole bunch of that stuff out there, believe it or not. Um, Bart Ehrman would be one of the most famous, if you ever hear of him. Um, Hitchens was in a debate, and this comes up a lot. And he was saying, well, one reason we know your Bible isn't true and Jesus isn't the Messiah or the Son of God and all this stuff, he said, because there's a slew of scriptures that clearly say they expected Jesus to come in the first century in that generation, and it didn't happen. And then, for possibly the first time ever, um, it would seem, the, other, the pastor in the debate with him said, actually, he did come. But you, just like much of the church, have misunderstood what kind of coming it was and all of those events and explained uh, to Christopher Hitchens um, the things that we're understanding here and now. So um, anyways, and there's lots of, I mean, there's been so many. Um, it doesn't help to, of course, when the church, I watched a documentary yesterday. Any of you have any, I don't think anyone does, Seventh-day Adventist background at all? Yeah, you do. Is that right? Now, is, how, how long? Okay. How old are you? Okay. What would you say? Yeah, that's right. That's, yeah. I watched a bunch of stuff on them recently. Um, they, they went through this whole thing called the Great Disappointment. And it was because in leading up to it, but it was supposed to have happened in 1844. And it, it's hard to explain it all because there were so many movements coming together at that time and branching out and so many uh, Jehovah's Witness, Church of Christ, um, Seventh-day Adventists, and a bunch of other groups were all sort of intermingly together apart. Da, da, da. You know what I'm saying? Like at that time as they were trying to figure stuff out. It was during the Second Great Awakening. Anyways, they had come to the conclusion, based on Daniel chapter 8, which actually deals with Antiochus Epiphanes, if you ever want, you know, look that up. Um, but they did the math on it and all this stuff. So they said, because in Daniel 8, it says he will, the Lord will come and cleanse his sanctuary. And so they said, well, the sanctuary is the earth. So they did the math, and it led up to the year of, well, it was first 1843. And I'm telling you, they, would, they were selling their homes. They were vehemently, you know, basically street preachers out handing out pamphlets. The Lord is coming. Get right with God. Da, da, da. And I'm, I'm, I mean, full board, full blown. Sell everything you got. We don't need it. He's coming back. Like for real, believed it, you know, and didn't happen. And then they said, well, when we did the math, we counted. We didn't. What was it? We did or didn't count the year zero. So it was. It's a year later. So they moved it to 1844. Same thing. Full board with it. Didn't happen. And then they said the last date was October 22nd. I think that was still 1844, a few months later. And um, those things are 
an embarrassment to the church. You know, and I'm not, I'm not casting dispersions on any people of any tradition. Um, some of my heroes of the faith, says William Branham, who had by far the most accurate prophetic gift I've ever seen. Um, I've, I've mentioned him here and there. Have any of you heard of William Branham? I mean, maybe just me mentioning him. His, his service, his, his crusades were unreal. He'd be up on the platform ministering. And Brother Branham was a backwood, backwood country boa from Kentucky. He, he, he talked like this. It was technically a stutter, but, but it wasn't a stu 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 stutter. It was like that. But when he preached, he wouldn't stutter. He'd get under the anointing and, and just powerfully preach. But anyways, man, he'd be in services, and an angel of the Lord would come and stand next to him and, and help him. I, I don't know how, you know, uh, help him, as it were. And just like in the, you know, there's different, even the book of Acts, but all throughout scriptures, angels are servants of God, you know, deliverers of messages and blessings. But um, he'd tell people that I remember listening to him once. He told uh, a guy out, uh, you sir out there with the red coat on or whatever, please stand up. And he said, the Lord is healing your lungs and heart right now. Um, and you've got a pack of cigarettes on the inside of your left coat pocket. Just go ahead and take them out and throw them away. And sure enough, the guy had cigarettes in there and takes them out and threw them away. Um, he pro Do you, you might know who Marilyn Hickey is. Yeah, he prophesied to Marilyn Hickey one time. She, she's older now, um, but she's had a powerful ministry over the years. I think that's on YouTube um, when he prophesied to her. But he said, yeah, I see that you come from a, a wooded, woody area. I don't remember what all he said to her, but, I mean, it was spot on. Um, he told one lady, I remember. She comes up to get prayed for. He said, yeah, I see a dark cloud hovering over you. He said, and two days ago, you were sitting on, on your bed, um, on the right side of your bed. You were sitting on it at your address. You know, I'm making this part up at 183 Parker Street. So the Lord revealed her address, you know, that, which happened in the book of Acts. You know, go to the street called Straight, stuff like that. And um, go ahead and call Dr. Johnson and uh, go get confirmed you're healed. I mean, just in cred. Bull. But we, it's important to remember, because a lot of people, when their favorite preacher has a fall, they get very disillusioned, and understandably so. A lot of people, you know, Jimmy Swaggart or whatever, take your pick, um, it can really affect people, which is why ultimately we want to respect each and every brother and sister and, and faithful servants of God, but we want our hope and our trust to be in the Lord, right? It's also point helps us understand that having dynamic power doesn't necessarily indicate correct doctrine, right? I, I'd prefer both, <laughs> but that's why we judge all things by the word at the end of the day. And so always our hope is in the Lord, in the truth of his word and not in man. But anyways, brother Branham, he, he didn't prophesy, but he predicted, uh, as he put it, that the Lord would have been returned, the rapture of the church, no later, I think, than 1972. Um, way back when, you, some of you will remember, I just saw a copy of it. Uh, me and Kara went to Lowry's bookstore for my birthday. Oh, I just turned 36. You're welcome. So, thank you, thank you. And we went to Lowry's bookstore, because I'm that kind of person, I guess. 
I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, Linda kept the babies, so it was kind of like a date, you know? So, because your kids will not let you get a word in, son. <laughs> At all. So, it was enjoyable. And usually, you know what happens? We're thinking, oh, we can actually have a conversation now. And you have nothing to say. You just drive. You know what I mean? One of those deals. So, <laughs> but um, I saw this book there, though. Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth. You've heard of it. Has anyone read it? I want to read it. I haven't actually read it yet. I, I've seen snippets of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I mention these regularly when we discuss these things. Um, one of my heroes of the faith, Lester Summerall, um, said that planet Earth would not continue beyond the year 2000. You know, and so um, time and time again, the church, I don't know, hurts its own cause by engaging in these uh, predictions. You know, um, Harold Camping was uh, just a few years ago. You would see their vans driving around, and they had um, he had several predictions that never happened. I forget what the last one was, 2000-something or other, 2008, something like that. But, um, of course, another famous one was 88 Reasons Jesus Will Return in 1988. Then it was 89. Then it was 92, 3, 4. There were five revisions, I think, of that book. That guy made a lot of money and never apologized or offered a refund. So, God bless him. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Another false prophet, you know. Um, but every Christian generation, just about, or especially in modern times, but also throughout other points of history, uh, Martin Luther was convinced he was living in the very last days. It was it. Jesus was coming any day. Utterly convinced of it. So only one generation so far has believed that there was the last and that the Lord was coming and was right about it. And that's the first century church. All right, I got to move on here. Uh, Matthew 24, we're just going to hit some highlights here just to help us understand some of this. So remember, they come to Jesus. They said, what will be the sign of your parousia, which in the Greek is your presence arrival, basically, uh, translated as your coming, and the end of the age. So, verse 5, Jesus says, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah and will mislead many. In the first century in Israel, many people, like many, many people, claimed to be the Messiah. Josephus, the very famous Jewish priest and historian who lived during these events and was commissioned by the Roman emperor to record them, he actually gives us many of these, the names of these false messiahs and their demises. And many tens of thousands of people died. Jewish people, by believing in and following these false messiahs as they were killed once the Romans heard about it. Because the, the Romans, when they would hear about, because basically it would, the purpose was to create an insurrection against Rome and a revolt. And so the Romans would hear about it and come in and snuff it out ruthlessly and brutally before it could gain momentum, that type of thing. And we have plenty of names, Josephus recorded, plenty of people. Um, Many who would claim they could do signs and wonders and would attract followers, and, uh, but the Romans would come snuff it out, and boom, you'd be killed along with this false Messiah. Uh, B, dealing with verse 6, Jesus says, You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, 
For these things must take place, but it is not yet the end. Now, this was notable because, as I put here, during this time specifically, the Roman Empire was living under what was known as the Pax Romana, which literally translates the Roman peace. In other words, Rome had finally, in their conquest, conquered enough of the, really, the civilized world that they were at a time of peace at that point. So uh, it was more of a time of occupation as opposed to still a time of advancement. And so, um, I mean, there's always wars and rumors of wars in the world, uh, but this was important at this time because it was, it was, but um, even though it changed, at this time it was it was a time of peace, but that changed. Verse seven: For nation will arise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. And uh, concerning famines, and this is just one example. And again, Josephus, if you ever just get the itch and you just got to learn more about this. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The names of these, like for example, these false messiahs, names of them, um, famines and earthquakes. I put a few examples here. He goes into vast detail about where, um, I forget who it was. It may have been Josephus. I can't remember exactly, but someone I want to say Josephus, I won't swear to it, um, said that there were so many earthquakes during this time that it basically, it seemed that the world itself as a whole was collapsing and just swallowing itself whole. So, but we don't know history and we think, oh, there's earthquakes today, so must be today. But that's not, you know, Jesus clearly said this generation, but a little history study can really clarify these things. Uh, concerning famines, just an example in the scripture, Acts eleven twenty eight, there was it says there were some prophets whom came down, and one of the prophets, his name was Agabus, and in Acts eleven twenty eight, he prophesied that there was a soon coming famine over the entire uh, world, but it is the Greek word oikomene, and it means the Roman Empire. And also we know that many of the Jews during the actual siege, they also died of famine, amongst other things. Earthquakes. Uh, too many to list, but I just put one. Uh, there were many terrible For example, you guys all know the city of Laodicea mentioned in the Bible. Uh, it's, it's most noted for being mentioned as one of the seven churches in Revelation, right? I think it's the last church Jesus mentioned. Uh, Laodicea was, was weighed absolutely destroyed, utterly destroyed by an earthquake in 62 AD. Just pew, done. Brought to nothing. Now this next one, this is a good verse I've been threatened with, and many of us probably have been. But the one who endures to the end, brother, he will be saved. Hallelujah. Thankfully, that's not, he's not talking about that kind of saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. This verse is not talking about uh, salvation in the sense of going to heaven. He was saying that whoever took heed to his warnings would thus endure and be saved from the impending doom. Uh, next here, verse 14, Jesus says, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. 
And there's a lot of, we could say about that. Maybe we'll just take just a moment here. Um, as I put in the notes there, the word world in this Greek, in this Greek, in this verse, in the Greek, um, as, as is very often the case, it's not cosmos, which means all of creation, and it's not gay, G-E, in the Greek, which means a specific land, a specific country. Um, again, that's oikomene for the Roman Empire. Um, so this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole, throughout the whole Roman Empire, in other words, and then the end of the age will come. And then, of course, here, the end that he's referring to is the one that his disciples asked him about in verse 3, which is the end of the age. Um, let me pull up a few verses here just to um, shed a little light on this. Because our heart... Our, it is hard for our brains to understand how this all happened, but we know so, we know so much from church history. Um, Thomas, oh, good old doubting Thomas, right? Um, Thomas took the gospel all the way to India, and, and he died as a martyr there, proclaiming the gospel. Uh, Mark, the author of you know Mark's gospel. Mark took the gospel all the way to Egypt, and that's where he died. And we know from just from the book of Acts alone, the gospel went to Italy, to Spain, and all these places. But one, one thing we overlook sometimes, for example, and I mentioned it last week, is the day of Pentecost, right? And so I'm just going to pull that up here, and uh, we'll take a, a look at it here. Concerning the gospel being preached. Uh, Acts chapter 2, now notice this, verse 4. Says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's not in your notes. I just, uh, it's up here though. Uh, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, notice this, verse 5. And there were Jews living in Jerusalem. Notice this, devout men from where? Every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together. They were bewildered because they each heard them speaking in their own language. Um, I mean, he just goes through some of the places here. Uh, verse uh, 8, And how is it that we hear each of them in our own language to which we were born? Uh, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, uh, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya, around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our tongues, what? Speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Or Jesus called it the gospel of the kingdom. So just right here, this is, this is at work in being fulfilled. Which, we don't connect that. Because we read Matthew 24, oh, and we, 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 it says world, and we, we just assume it means the whole world. Um, and we just don't connect these things. But there's so many verses. Let me show you one or two more. Book of Romans. Chapter 16, I believe, uh, verse 25. Paul says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, verse 26, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to who? all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. Um, let's 
look at one or two more here, maybe. Oh yeah, Romans uh, chapter one. Uh, let's look here um, in verse eight. Paul says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now that's the Greek word cosmos. Yeah, that one says cosmos. So Paul meant everywhere. You know, I mean, what do you do? You agree with Jesus? And I know we do, but <laughs> you know. Um, and there's others. Romans chapter 10, Paul talks about it. Colossians 1, Paul makes similar references. So many scriptures affirm this. So I think that's just important to um, have a grasp on. Because if you're wanting to share this good news with someone, and they say, don't you tell me the gospel's been preached in the whole world. Well, how many verses do you need? There's three powerful ones right there. You know, uh, Acts chapter 2, every man, every nation under heaven. Romans 1, your faith is being spoken throughout the entire cosmos, the whole world. Romans 16, the gospel is being proclaimed to all nations. And there's others. Romans 10, you can find Paul mentioned it there. Uh, Colossians 1 as well. And there might be more. That's just off the top of my head. Do I need to repeat any of those? Acts chapter 2, Romans 16, 25 and 26. Romans 1, 8. And then in Romans 10, I'd have to find which verse, but it's there. Uh, Colossians 1. Early in the chapter, somewhere, I'd have to find it too, but it's in there as well. So, okay. Um, any questions at this point? Hope this is okay. I know it's more of a teaching, informative message, but um, as opposed to preaching or whatever, but hopefully this is, it's good to be solidified in these things, you know? Very helpful. Okay. Um, then look here, verse uh, F on page five, verses 15 and 16. Jesus says, and he quotes from Daniel here, well, it says that. He says, when you see the abomination of destruction or desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And I used to read these verses, and nobody could really explain, because you get these verses about flee to the mountains, um, then you got the verses about uh, whoever's sitting on their house, don't let him come down. People don't sit on their houses today, generally. I mean, not usually, not in the States, not in a lot of civilized places. But we know this was common at this time, the way the homes were built. Luke chapter 5, you got a man, there's no room to get to Jesus. How did they get to him? Well, they go up on top of the house, of course. That's how you would have done it. Let him through, duh. And so that was, that was a more common practice. Then, and then we may look at this next week, you got all these verses about, remember the, when Jesus says later in this chapter about, um, you got one, you know, you got, you know, in the, you know, in the field, yeah, yeah, one's taken and one's left. That's the rapture. No, that's, one's taken into slavery and one's killed, because that's what the Romans did to the Jews, if they didn't take heed to these warnings. And then you got the one here, he says, uh, there's something about two men in bed. Well, as far as I can tell, that's not very sanctified. If you, Why would there be two men? What he meant was when the Jews were hiding from the Romans. And so anyways, um, understanding this makes plain common sense of all these things without stretching it into bizarre theories. Now, check this out. Eusebius, who's another incredible... I, I, Josephus is awesome, and so is Eusebius on these issues. Um, here's what Eusebius, who is called the father of church history, here's what he said one place concerning this. You know, flee to the mountains. 
But the people of the church in Jerusalem had been commanded by a revelation vouchsafed to approved men there before the war to leave the city and to dwell in a certain town of Perea called Pella. Jesus said, flee to the mountains, flee to the hills. Pella was a mountainous community. And I mentioned this before, but it's, it's neat that it happened this way. In Joshua 3 and 4, when the children of Israel finally get to the promised land, they had to cross the Jordan River, and the Lord had the priest to carry the ark, and he made the water flow down, and he held the water back so they could cross on dry land. Um, but in order to leave Jerusalem and to get to Mount Pella, as Jesus told them, flee to the hills, flee to the mountains, you had to cross the Jordan to leave. And to me, that was a, a very prophetic, symbolic statement because they're leaving this old covenant promised land, but now they're going to the true promised land, not Mount Pillah, but the true city of peace, the people of God. Because you are a city set on a hill. And then you think about um, Peter and so, you know, what, what he said about a, uh, how do you say it, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. See, that's us. The, the city of God's a people, not a piece of dirt somewhere. And that's a beautiful reality. Uh, finishing up here with Eusebius. says, And when those that believed in Christ had come thither from Jerusalem, then, as if the royal city of the Jews and the whole land of Judea were entirely destitute of holy men, the judgment of God at length overtook those who had committed such outrages against Christ and his apostles and totally destroyed th that generation of impious men. Let me see if I can find one last thing here I just thought of. Uh, any questions, thoughts, comments, whatevers, feel free to shout it out. find a certain verse here that's uh, very interesting if I can find it one second let me show you something this is very interesting um, Acts chapter 24 and we are closing now this is interesting now this let me show you how this reads here um, the NASB reads this, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves. Now notice this. I know it's small. I'm sorry. That there shall certainly be, notice that, that's key here. There shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And that is an inaccurate translation. Let me read that to you from the Young's literal translation, Acts 24, uh, 15 in the Young's literal translation, and it is correct based on the Greek word. So here it says, there will be a resurrection, but what he actually said was, if I could ever get to Acts 24, here we go, verse 15, having hope toward God, which they themselves also await for, that there is about to be. It's, I believe it's the Greek word mellow, which means about near it's about to happen um that there is about to be a rising again of the dead 
both the righteous and the unrighteous. So even, and we can get into this later, maybe, or, or it, it just depends. Um, but in 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, Hebrews chapter 9 plainly says that the saints, because Hades, you had the good, the good department and the bad, or compartment. Remember, Jesus gives the parable, and the guy's over here suffering, and he says, just let him put a drop of tongue on my water. You got Abraham's bosom, in other words, for the, am I, make, am I getting anywhere? Kara looks confused. Oh, water on tongue. Whew. When someone looks so confused that it distracts you, you know you did something wrong. So, put some water on my tongue. Yeah, that whole parable, you guys know that? Well, that's Abraham's bosom. Hebrews 9 tells us, that the entrance to the heavenly could not be made open until the earthly tabernacle was destroyed. Is it Hebrews 9. So, the old covenant saints, at the eschaton, the end of the age, there was a resurrection of the old covenant saints out of the holding cell, the Abraham's bosom, into the true heaven itself. In 70 AD, at the destruction of the temple. And this is just one of many verses that show this. Now, that's what Paul meant. I hope I'm not going too far or whatever. In 1 Thessalonians 4. Now, let me show that to you, and then I'm really finished, said the lying preacher. 1 Thessalonians 4, which is, if you were raised in dispensationalism, like many of us were, this was our, if you, believe, if you were a dispensationalist and believed in a rapture, this was the pre-trib rapture verse of all pre-trib rapture verses. Forget the context of 1 Thessalonians. Who needs that? We just make it mean what we want to say. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, Paul talking to real living people at that time, you know, says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Sleep was a covenantal word. Um, it primarily seems to come from Daniel. Daniel used this. You will sleep in the dust of the earth with your forefathers, Daniel chapter 12. Um, Jesus used it often. Paul used it often. Um, it was, there, there's a lot behind that. It's, it would take too long to really develop it. But So that you will not grieve as those who do not have hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Those who are in, in other words, Abraham's bosom. At that time, why was it? It was sleep because they weren't in heaven yet, but they also weren't suffering and torment or anything like that. The the faithful people of God. Remember, sec, uh, Peter talks about this. He said Noah, or he said Jesus went and preached to those who were in prison, those who were disobedient in the days of Noah. See the people in Abraham's bosom. Now, for if we believe Jesus died, rose again, He will bring with them those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, and I believe he's referencing Matthew 24. Those, now notice this, those who are alive and remain will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The, the covenant faithful people of God who have already died before the Lord's coming. We're not going to go before them. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now notice he says the trump. 
and you read the book of Revelation and you understand the Jewish, the shofar, the trumpets, this was the final trumpet at the end of the Old Covenant age. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Now, the word clouds there, think biblical language. Don't just think, oh, a cloud, pretty. Cloud, what's that? Uh, there's, there's two, I was going to say, there's the two usages. The Lord came in the clouds in judgment. It's a, met, it's a metaphoric way of, I don't think Jesus actually made the Romans come in and kill them, but he took his hand of protection off of them because they pushed him away. That's a form of judgment. And so his coming in the clouds was a form of judgment on them. Also, think about Hebrews chapter 12. We are surrounded right here and right now by what? The cloud of witnesses. So we're caught up into the clouds, our brothers and sisters, the cloud of witnesses in the Lord. All right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that this happens to each one in their own order. So it's not a once-for-all event. It's as each believer dies, then they experience this, this resurrection. All right? Caught up and will always be with the Lord. Hallelujah. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So we step out of this body, we're caught up in the clouds, and we experience resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul literally says, uh, there's a lot there, but it's 58 odd verses, the whole chapter. It's a great chapter. But he says, we put off this mortal and we put on immortal. He says, we put off this uh, corruptible and put on incorruptible. But he literally says, you know, the phrase glorified physical body is not in the Bible. Paul says it is sown as a weak physical body. It is raised a spiritual body. So we shed this flesh. We experience resurrection life. We're caught up in the clouds with all of our loved ones, our friends, our family, our brothers and sisters in the Lord, where we shall be forever. I can dig it. The Glory Center would like to thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope that it is encouraged and ministered to you. We also would like to invite you to check out our website at glorycenter.org.